hey didi welcome to show um uh, thanks for joining absolute pleasure to be here atraj um so i found you at twitter um where i spend insane amounts of time uh like everybody else um but you're one of the few people i feel like the three things that intersect um uh because if i look at my followers most of them are non indians or non indian origin um and a lot of indian indian origin or like people who work in tech um are not that active uh if they are active uh they don't have huge followings uh and they're not strategic about and they don't have interesting opinions uh and the ones who have interesting opinions are not actively on twitter and writing about it uh so i think you uh, sort of like intersect all these three things you work in tech um they worked in google um now you're working at glean um and you write interesting threads and i think one of the interesting parts and in, with this podcast also we try to do something is uh because of being indian and because of being in venture i see both us and indian side of things and i think you your twitter content is also somewhat mixed uh taking writing about the indian content and us content as well uh so this this is why uh, i think you uh, seemed interesting to me and i wanted to have a conversation with you uh, on the podcast uh but before getting into all that um can you uh, just introduce yourself and you know what was your education and career till now absolutely thanks natraj no i i appreciate that very much i also do spend a little bit of time on twitter these days um let me introduce myself first so my name is dibarho i i go by dd usually you can find me on twitter at debarco_das and uh, and in terms of my professional experience you know i let me start before that you know i grew up a little bit mixed um i was born in india but i was i spent 7 years in the bay area when i was a child when my family was here and i moved back in the 5th grade after and i spent middle school and high school in calcutta and then i came back to america for college um i went i went to cornell up in ithaca and did my bachelor's and masters in computer science uh, after which i spent a year at facebook uh didn't really like it moved to google and worked on google search for 4 years across uh, new york i spent some time in israel and then bangalore and after my uh, one and a half year stint in bangalore i decided to take the plunge and i joined glean as one of the founding members and glean is now a unicorn a startup a saas company that sells enterprise search tools so that's that's my background so i thought um one of the topics i wanted to talk to you about uh was uh, regarding indian startups i think you wrote uh, a bunch of uh content around you know which companies are succeeding and which companies are not uh so just give me an overview of what do you think is happening right now in the unicorn class uh, especially on indian startups Yeah so let me let me start by saying that you know when when I moved to Bangalore I was working at Google at the time and one of the big reasons there were many reasons but one of the big reasons I moved back was to learn more about the tech ecosystem and you moved in from India, US you know. to Bangalore Correct I was in New York prior to that and I moved from New York to Bangalore um I knew it was going to be a temporary thing it was just testing the waters but I did want to get a better feel for how tech works and and what's available in India now because I always hear so much hype about it from the internet you hear new startups are getting funded there's over 100 unicorns in India there's so many stories of big acquisitions uh Shark Tank is now you know a household name in in India so you know in some sense startups and venture and entrepreneurship has really become mainstream and i wanted to see what the hype was all about and when i was there i learned a few interesting things and and maybe this comes back to my twitter opinion is i like to have a nuanced take on things i don't want to have before or against something but i want to understand what it's all about and when i looked into the startup ecosystem in india one thing i didn't find was there was no critique you know everyone always writes positive news about indian startups pretty much across the board um maybe a little bit of that has changed now uh but that really irked me and that was kind of a negative signal everything can't be good with any ecosystem there's some good some bad and the more i dug into it the more of the bad i would find i mean most of the people writing these things are are vcs and they have their incentivized to write good things they're invested in these companies um or people working at the startups who are also invested in the ecosystem so the more i looked into it i realized look 
there's a lot of good stuff happening in india like look it's a growing market there is growing disposable income technology it's a technology first market people are growing up with mobile phones in you know volumes that we when i grew up in india was unprecedented when we were there and that's great i think there's a lot of potential there however a lot of the companies that i saw in india were just not real businesses i think that's the first thing that struck me you know you are building amazing products a lot of the products work really well they have many many users they solve a big problem need quickly one of the great examples is dunzo Dunzo is a company for those of who of those who don't know. Dunzo is a company where you can order anything from anywhere immediately, including a free text box of custom instructions of what you want this person to do, and it costs you thirty rupees on top of you know what you would normally pay, which is incredible. But it's very evident that learning from some of these examples in America, some of these business models, I never saw them scaling. so then the more i dug into it you see there are some insidious loops where these ceos of these startups would raise generate a, a bunch of hype build a great product raise a bunch of money hire a bunch of people and my call by question was okay well what's your exit plan here like these companies aren't going to make money um they're never going to be profitable you're you're talking about 80 90% loss margins it's very hard to turn those kinds of businesses around in many of those cases and i realized that what was happening is either they were too attracted to valuation and just didn't understand what building a good business meant because they were blown away by all the hype or they understood that at some point or they knew that going in and they decided to sell secondary so they were getting rich and building their own personal brand and if the company didn't work it was like oh the market's not ready but i tried my best um even though you know that's questionable so that's sort of a high level overview of what the good and the bad is and i think not every company is bad but my opinion is a lot of i would say aside from less than 10 companies most consumer oriented startups in india i struggle to see a path to profitability for them from from an outsider looking in and one last point i'll add there is more of a subtle uh thing is the reason you can critique the indian ecosystem and this is great uh in comparison to the us is the mca the ministry of corporate affairs in india for uh asks startups and even private companies to file financials every year so you can actually see how much money they're making how much money they're losing all of these details which you can't really get visibility in america yeah i i think I've invested both in US and Indian companies. So one of the things that's, I mean, there are bad things in India as well. But in terms of like regulation and filing paperwork, which is a lot more, which includes this particular uh, feature, most of things are bugs, but there are some features in it, which is what you mentioned, uh, where you can get every year you give the valuation. For example, if you invested in a US startup, you don't know what valuation it is running as an investor, uh, unless you are like a lead investor who is on the board and you know you get the insider information, but rest of them don't know which valuation at this point their internal valuation is uh for indian startups every year you get an updated valuation so you know very quickly what the feedback is from the company um but the point about incentives right um a lot of startup media are startups so your story is a startup like even though you can say tech crunch in the us criticizes some of the companies uh, but mostly they are you know they talk about funding news and uh, there's some you know occasionally they come up with uh, a critique of company or like they coverage they do cover a critique made by a different publication uh, but in india your story or ink 42 and some other you know upcoming publications they are pretty much startups themselves they are like promising investors to attract attention um, so it's like that incentive is not there for them but there are other publications like i think this one morning context or something which is a purely yeah. subscription based uh they did some investigative or sort some criticism about startup models um they're purely subscription based i think so they don't often get uh you know referred by your story or you know ink 42 um and that whole ecosystem which i get and i think you're also right about um the secondary uh, share sales aspect of it which happened i think in us also right for example there was this company which was hopin um at peak of you know pandemic it was valued at 7. something billion 
the founder exited for 150 million dollars it is now valued again at i think 1.2 billion or something so i mean in in a sense the founder did the right thing like if you know the company is overvalued like is it wrong that i am selling my stock right right uh, that that sort of applies if uh, you know, in your public markets also, right? If I am holding a stock and I know that it's overvalued, what do I do? I hold it or I sell it, right? So there is some interesting incentives. Uh, and also a lot of early employees, like look at all these things as the same. I think where the education really lacks is, uh, especially in Indian markets, is uh, a lot of people don't understand what is the incentive structure going in as an early employee or joining in as an engineer, like how uh simple or how easily the whole system can break down in six months like that aspect i think is still pretty much unknown even though like the top level the founder sector people who are creating companies understand this incentive structure very well and you know that's what happened they raised at pretty high valuations you know in last two years uh, even a starting pre-seed company with no team no product was raising at 10 million dollars uh and that might be a little bit norm normalized in the u.s from seven to ten but in india it's it's extremely high, especially if you see things like what's happening on Shark Tank India or something, right? Um, yeah. like that's extremely high valuation for a pre-seed company with no product, uh, just an idea. But those things happen. And, you know, we, we now see that there are no path into actually finding a product uh, or product market fit or even surviving for the next 18, 24 months. Um, and to your customer, I think consumer products, right? I think there are very few categories large enough where consumer side of companies can actually work and i think india is in a phase where the primary needs or like the absolute primary needs are winning like you take swiggy for example right swiggy is crushing it um and that's like basic need it serves a very basic need done so also in a lot of ways serves a very basic need uh, and then there's like gaming and gambling which is working really well um, and then I think there's whole edtech gamut with Vedantu and Baiju's and which, which I think have lost the plot in terms of like what is the right scale and valuation. I think there is a use case, there's a right product market fit, but again they overvalued themselves, they overscale themselves because we've seen this in um, public markets as well in the U.S. Right? Not all the SaaS companies that are overvalued are bad companies or bad products. It's just that. You can't value something that is making one billion in at hundred billion valuation. One billion is still a good business. Why can't you have a company which is you know uh, one billion uh, revenue and valued at you know four or five billion? That's a good business with three hundred employees, right? But when you change that to you know value at hundred billion, then your expectations of revenue are increasing, and then you know you basically revert back to mean, and that's what we are seeing, right? Um, but what are the some you know, uh, consumer companies that uh, that are not working well, uh, according to you. Uh, I, mean, I think the numbers show it, but some of the things that you are on top of your head. Well, I, I'm going to name names, but, and I've heard contrasting stories of this. You know, I, I tweeted about this earlier and then a bunch of people got, got into my DMs about it. The ones that aren't working well in India, um, I know cred right now, the financials don't look good. Um, I've heard that their future predict forecast is great, but everyone says that. So, you know, time will tell. You have companies like Baiju's that are, you know, just spending through the roof and they're not able to retain customers. All of their like sales expense is gone to waste because you get, you get to book revenue the first time and then the customers churn and that's not particularly going great. Uh, numbers aren't at the top of my head. Um, in fact, I would say, given the current state of affairs, of course, things change, startups grow, numbers don't always look good at the early stage, yeah. but only like Zerodha, Physicswala, I think um, Gamescraft, and uh, maybe a couple of gaming companies, Dream 11, are the only four that I know that are consumer and that are, I think, sufficiently profitable, which is, you know, that's, I just made that up. Like, I feel like they're actually profitable. The ones that are not sufficiently profitable is like Nika and Mama Earth are barely breaking even. They're just running a big, um, I mean, they're great companies, good products, but they're running just big Amazon uh, consumerized D2C brands. 
The other ones, uh, uh, other than these examples, I struggle to name many that are on track. You know, some at a scalar academy is not a unicorn yet, but they seem on track to be profitable. Not many others are on a good financial track today. And that may change, but not a lot, a lot of them are. But I do want to address some of the other points that, that you mentioned, because you did mention a lot of them in response. Um, I I often get a lot of critique when people say, hey, you know, this is the a very classic Indian retort is, why are you pointing out Indian problems? This happens in America too. And uh, to that, it's my response is, yes, it does. Uh, there's enough coverage in America that I don't have to point them out, um, firstly. Secondly, I do think that maybe I don't have conclusive evidence of this, but in America, I typically don't see as egregious of uh, loss margins, for example. Like even when Uber was making loss for the longest time, and I think this quarter, Q4, they're close to profit or almost profitable. Airbnb was profitable, I think, for the first year since they were existed, but they were never really losing 90% of their the money. They were losing a bit, but you could see a path. Um, for a lot of the Indian companies, I don't see a path. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm, I'm no investor, um, at least not in these companies. So I, I don't know. Uh, but I do want to say a couple of other things to your other points. You mentioned pre-seed and seed valuations being high. Yeah, totally agree. Across the board, you know, in America and India, they're high. Nothing to be done about that. A lot of the, the times they fail. Uh, in terms of consumer need, I think that point is interesting because you know a lot of these companies have product market fit. That's not really the concern for 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 me at least. When I was in India, Dunzo was amazing. There's this company called Bounce Scooter where you'd rent a scooter. Yeah, amazing as a consumer. Swiggy, amazing. Zomato, amazing. None of these products were bad. Like they're great products. The problems really were that India is a very price sensitive market. There's almost no brand um, retention or brand uh, loyalty, unlike in America. And people will switch for like five rupees. You know, if something is five rupees cheaper on the other app, I'm going to order on the other app. That's sort of the mindset. And so without that brand retention, it becomes a bit of a fight to the bottom in terms of price. And I think that's in the business angle, a lot of these companies struggle as a result of that because it's fair to say Swiggy is a great business and I don't remember Swiggy's internal financials. So it's, this is not a dunk on them or anything, but Swiggy can't charge a hundred rupees per delivery tomorrow and get away with it. You know, yeah. they're going to lose market share if they start to do that. So they might be a fantastic product, but I don't know if that business is justified or how it will look in the future because of the price sensitivity. So that's kind of my view on, on, on the Indian consumer companies. Although I will say, you look at SaaS companies in India, there's not very many of them, but fantastic play. Um, you, when you're a SaaS company in India, on the other hand, you can make use of the fact that talent is cheaper. Even though it's rising, talent is still way cheaper than America. You can build great SaaS tools and sell them in America. And you can just undercut because your cost structures are so much better. Um, and many companies are already doing this um, in, in, in various different ways. So, Yeah, I think uh, there's a leverage. Uh, I mean, it's, a, it's sort of like the opposite of what happened with the uh, IT sector, right? Because uh, the entire IT generation where Infosys, you know, Tata Consultancy, all these companies that came up, uh, they got projects from the developed nations from the US and the UK, and they were able to execute them at the cheaper cost. Now you've sort of, but the profit is uh, sh sort of shared with the US and UK companies and you are making margins, marginal profits. But now if you're controlling the product completely and you're at the same cost, you basically shift the economics completely on your side and you can basically make, you know, uh, get all the higher, basically you are the one who are, who's capturing the value essentially. Uh, so that's, uh, and we have seen success, success stories. I think Fresh Desk was one. Um, what is the other company where the founder lives in a village or claims to Zoho. be? Yeah, yeah, Zoho is another company, which is sort of like the Microsoft of everything, right? They offer pretty much everything and it's what it's, I think they never raised outside funding after a couple of rounds, I think. Uh, and I don't like think a, they ever raised. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think they think... ever raised and a billion dollars revenue, I think. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. I think they're at something. Some I've heard a billion figure thrown around, uh, and they're now 20 year olds. And I see 
them popping up in different companies for different use cases. Like one is using it for, you know, um, as a CRM tool, one is using for a different purpose. So they have a whole stack of tools. It's sort of like the whole theory. Like if you have a tool that is successful in the US, they have a version of it. Like you take a, the, if you have Loom that is successful in the US, they'll have a version of it. Uh, and the US consumer can buy it, right? Uh, you have Treat Hunter in the US, like they have a version of it. Uh, Zoho has a version of that. Uh, so you see any SaaS, you know, micro niche product successful in the US, Soho will come up with that product pretty soon. Uh, so it looks like they will single-handedly take that <laughs> leverage that is coming up uh, by, you know, shifting the product control to India. Um, so, I mean, you, you mentioned Shark Tank. Like, uh, I, I, and my sense is that you're following that. Like, one of the interesting things in Shark Tank India versus Shark Tank US that I've noticed is Shark Tank US is pretty much small and medium enterprise. Uh, there's always, uh, like if a Silicon Valley style pitch comes up, like Mark Cuban will throw them out. Uh, you know, this kind of addition doesn't work here. One thing I was amazed to see in this season particularly is um, it's much more closer to Indian startup ecosystem. Um, I've actually seen a couple of these pitches before they were on Shark Tank, like Flatheads uh, was the shoe company, which is similar to like a shoe company here. Um, there was another um, Mind Peers was like a mindful company that came on recently, which I've seen before. Um, and the interesting thing is, it's much more similar to a venture, uh, you know, ecosystem than the SME market that we are seeing. Even though we see a lot of SME companies, but the language is pretty close to VC. Like no one says, hey, we are doing a pre-seed on Shark Tank US, right? We are just asking for money and, you know, this is a small medium business. Uh, what are your thoughts about Shark Tank India? Well, to be honest, my answer is going to be very disappointing because I don't watch enough. Uh, I get forwarded clips from time to time and then I see them and I know the Ashneer Grover's iconic <laughs> Dokla Pan clip. But no, I, I do notice all, I have noticed all of the things that you were saying though. Um Perhaps, like not to sound terrible about this, perhaps that's bad. I, I wonder if India does have enough of a burgeoning small and medium business market. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, maybe they're all family businesses. Like they, like that's most of them I know. But I do know that there aren't that many people in India starting non-tech businesses. Um, and that's that's kind of the only comment I had. I know the Shark Tank India judges do face a lot of critique a lot of people say hey you know all of your companies are loss making but um but no i haven't i the few things i've seen i find it pretty nice and entertaining and yeah i, I, have, I have not much to add there it's cool i'm very glad that you know the, the terminology and just the fact that this is something that parents know about and everybody in india just knows about is exciting um and it's a big change from from like the k serials that people used to watch in the 90s you know so i i think i welcome the change but i have no real thoughts on it to be honest yeah um what i mean so you followed you closely follow what's happening with indian startups uh we sort of saw similar trends um in u.s startups at, at least in a growth stage startup level i think the public markets played out pretty well. Like if all these companies, right? Like all these consumer companies, if they were public, I would see like that that's what, you know, would happen with, you know, what we have seen with some of the high growth startups, uh, SaaS startups that we've seen in public markets here would have happened. So what do you think is happening with in general, like big tech and, you know, I think there's, there's sort of like this narrative that, hey, you know, tech is down, this, uh, the the golden era of 2010 to 2020 is over um, and you know different uh, thoughts floating around so because of all the layoffs that we are seeing and the valuations going down in both public and private markets uh, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on that yeah there's there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there I think let me start with um, I think the layoffs I'll go get to later let me start with what I think the future of tech is a lot of the the boom of technology that we saw before was sort of built on new devices and capturing user attention. 
if you think about sort of the biggest innovations of tech from 2000 to 2020, fundamentally, a lot of them were, okay, let's get mobile phones into everybody's hands cheaply. Um, let's make laptops and hardware a lot cheaper and let's give them stuff to do. So you have utilities that will either help you do everything. So search or maps or photos and what have you, cameras, or you have, you know, social media websites where you can be entertained and connect with your friends and so on. So Instagram, Facebook, um, messaging for WhatsApp. And it's come to a point where this is what I think, this is not really based off of too much like factual data, but we're coming to a point where we're, A, the population is not going to keep increasing. Like that's probably something we all know now. The population will not continuously increase and people's time spent on their phone will eventually cap out. Like the incremental gains are very limited. So Facebook is at 3 billion total monthly users across all of their apps. Maybe that can increase a little bit more, but you know we're quickly coming to a point where it's going to reach a, an absolute saturation point. So then the question is, if that is, if we've peaked out on you know, penetration, then the only lever that you can really dial is monetizing those users better. So there will be a lot of work on that. I still think we're very far from, tech companies are very far from actually monetizing all of their users well. They're still using models like ads, which is in some sense, a little bit low um, revenue per user. I feel like you can do a better job there. There's a lot of innovation to be had in monetization, but even all of those things combined, I'm not bearish, but I wonder where that new growth will come from. So a lot of people talk about AI and this and that, but Sure, you can make AI and sell AI to other companies, but in terms of big tech and really saying where does the next hundred billion dollars of revenue come from, I don't know. Is it like a little bit can come from cloud, a little bit can come from get better monetization models, but will we ever see a two thousand to two thousand twenty growth spurt again? I don't know. I don't. I don't see how yet. Um, so that's one thing. That's where I would come from first, and then. All of that sort of then trickles down to, you know, what actually happened on the ground, which is, okay, we had the pandemic. That was a last, maybe some would say the last final breath of, okay, now people are using their phones all the time because they're sitting at home. And so you get this huge spike in all sorts of businesses like food delivery and YouTube and ads all go up. But now that that's gone, what is the, what is the future? Revenues declined for all of these companies. They're definitely... I, a lot of people say they overhired. I disagree with that in, statement because I'm like, they've always been hiring this way. They've been hiring this way since 2010. Pretty much every big tech company has been growing. They didn't really overhire in the pandemic that much. But finally, you know, as if the fat lady started singing, the tech profits, the tech revenue is no longer going up the same way it's been going up for 20 years. It was been 20%, 20%, 20% for almost every single company. Now it's not there anymore. So they've had to lay off people and actually focus on being a good business because you can't print money forever. And uh, do I think that will change? I, I, I don't really know where it will come from, um, but it'll be interesting to see how new technology actually manages to monetize users. I do see that when we grew up, we would think of tech as a nice to have, like, okay, I'll spend 10 bucks on Netflix. I'll spend five bucks here, 10 bucks here. But we weren't spending real money on tech, you know, like no one's spending a thousand dollars for something um, ever. So I wonder whether there are like premium companies and or, or assets in tech that will be priced so high just in order to extract revenue from users and, and grow a business. There was never really that tier for consumer businesses before. So those are some some thoughts. Yeah, I think... Um... In the recent, uh, like the launch of uh, ChatGPT Bing uh, uh, interview that Satya did, uh, one of the things he mentioned was like, yeah, if we as humanity have to go, like we have to increase our productivity. Like where does that productivity come from? Like, and he thinks that, you know, AI will be that sort of underlying force that will shift all the boats. And it's, it's sort of like the, the rising tide that will shift all the boats and I can see that play out, but again, um, how good that AI will become 
and how mainstream it will become and how faster it will become like those are all the things that yet to be seen but there are i think i mean i think uh we sort of like overestimate also like how fast can we do this stuff and sometimes we also overcorrect. I think in short term, I think what is happening, like not talking about the growth companies, right? If you just talk about like the big tech, uh, the four or like maybe 10 companies at the top, um, I think these companies know much better in terms of what their expected revenue and profits are, um, like estimated revenue. They are much more accurate than a regular business. Uh, they're much more predictable. Uh, and I think there was this a little bit of a lax of an environment which led that because everything was growing. They I I actually disagree with you there that they didn't overhire. I think they did overhire. Um, and especially when because uh, I don't know if you have observed every CEO now in the earnings call says that hey we thought uh, the pandemic was the normal and and I'm like how how can you think the pandemic is a normal? It is a pandemic. <laughs> so uh, so I think. There is there was some overhearing, and I can understand for companies like you know Amazon, which had to dramatically scale their supply chain, it made sense. But I think pure software scaling, maybe they did overhire. I mean, I don't know. Can we say that's engineering overhire or sales overhire or uh, you know marketing overhire? And that has you know we can debate that. But I think based on like what I've seen like this the Seattle company's growth, uh, I think companies did overhire and also like overpay honestly because right uh that also now comes to the question of like the let's talk with the growth companies right let's ignore the big tech which actually are pro you know highly profitable i think you wrote a tweet about what the four companies make 1.5 trillion uh revenue or something right these companies are making real money and like they have you know they are not worried about their business model but if you talk about the companies like coinbase snapchat and uh, some of these companies which are in 10 to 20 billion you know market cap range i think these companies really were not run well i mean uh, because you can't hire engineers like google if you don't have the margins like google i think for a long time a lot of startups thought themselves that you know we have to do this stuff and they didn't really think of the long term because if yeah you're snapchat you're cool but if you're paying the same amount as Google or more, then without actually making profitable profits, I think that's mismanagement of companies. I think this will destroy the uh, founder singularly owning the company status that the last 10 years gave. Because the last 10 years, one of the things I think Google started this is the dual shareholder structure where, which enables Mark Zuckerberg to control Facebook entirely. Uh, which enables Evan Spiegel to control Snapchat entirely. Uh, and now there's no really a controlling force. There's no force which can come in and say, hey, Snapchat is not well run because Snapchat is entirely controlled by one person's you know, direction. Um, and I think, and even Coinbase for, for a lot of things, I think there was a chief product manager, you know, CPO they hired who left the company in three years made like 200 or some ridiculous amounts of money, right? I, I will say that these are mismanagements that, you know, we've seen because of, or like we can call it as a zero interest rate phenomena um, that we've seen primarily in not the big tech actually, because like if you see at Microsoft and not because I work there, but actually they it's not an extravagant workplace like people assume it is. But if you actually go into their buildings and, you know, look at, uh, you know, how the buildings are run and when you compare that with the Google, yeah, it's not extravagant. Google is a little bit more extravagant than everyone knows. It's like the top of the uh, bucket. Um, but my actually uh, observation here is actually the 10 to 20 and 10 to 50 billion companies were actually mismanaged much more than the big tech companies. And big tech companies are just reacting to the fact that consumers are going to spend less. So let's just adjust as fast as we can. And the predictability makes them adjust as fast as they can. I have, I have some thoughts on that. So I, I mean, I think that's, that's well said. Let me first respond to the overhiring. Um, let's say like the reason why I disagree with you there is, and it's not really, I think we're on the same page, but we're saying the same thing in different ways. The reason I don't think it's overhiring is because the percentage they're used to hiring 
year over year hasn't changed. That's just factually true. Like it hasn't really changed. They didn't hire excessively more than they would have before. Microsoft, uh, Apple was growing at 5% a year. Google grows at 15% a year. I think Facebook was 25 or something like that. That is just, that was for every tech company, big tech company, just the recommendation. Your revenue grows by X, you hire by Y, which is completely in lockstep. Now, the point where I do agree with you is, now, is that a good idea? Should you grow like that? Probably not. Like it's it's not wise to grow your engineers. Your engineers don't have to scale with your revenue. And that's main, that fundamental assumption is broken. So in that respect, they overhired. But in that respect, the pandemic has nothing to do with it. They've been doing that for a while. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I could argue that Google shouldn't have, you could argue, anyone could argue that after 2010, Google could have just stopped hiring. Yeah. So there were times where that worked because everyone that they hired extra would go out and then create these fantastic product lines within the company that kept the company growing and had, generated more revenue or really established the company's distribution uh, or, or so on and so forth. That stopped happening because then the people became lazy and no new business lines have come out of Google for a while, um, for example. So that's my point with overhiring, you know, depending on how you break it down, I think there's slightly, we're saying the same thing, but in slightly different ways. Uh, when it comes to mismanagement and uh, the market rate, um, well, the hard part about what you're saying is in unfortunately it's very hard to hire engineers at less than market it's the reason that they pay them as much as they as google and microsoft and all of these other big tech companies do is because they won't come work for you for less and uh, and that's that's really tough to combat a lot of companies have done it and they've done interesting ways of optimizing the cost some companies have just decided we don't need a rate engineers to run our business we can run our business with B-rate engineers, but it'll be a fantastic business. So there's different angles to that attack problem, but it's not always easy, I would say, in, in response to that, to hire at less than the the yeah. market I mean, rate that a Google or Microsoft person gets It's definitely not easy. Paid. It's definitely not easy. And there is a aspect of like paying a market rate. But I think that's where you as a company have to get a little bit more creative and like you increase stock compensation and reduce your base salary or... And it's not just engineering, right? It's not just engineering, right? It's across, it's it's the product roles, it's sales roles, it's marketing roles, it's everywhere. It's not just engineering. And that's where I think um, companies like Snapchat and Coinbase have really didn't do the way, for example, Amazon did, right? Amazon, when they mm-hmm. were growing, uh, they had to compete with Microsoft, but they found a way to, you know, not go the Google way. Like if you... You know, Amazon was competing with Microsoft, but it was not competing with Google. Uh, so mm. Amazon was very, I think, the principle of frugality that somehow they cracked that combination of, you know, hiring young people, making sure they're staying for three years. They somehow had this, you know, a mix, a combination of things going for them. And they kept it going consistently for 10 years um, in the same market, right, where Microsoft and Google existed um, and were able to continuously grow and I mean, they have one of the largest engineering teams. And they also, I would argue, slightly derailed in the last three to four years. Um, in I think, you know, they went along with the pressures of the market in that sense. Last four years were crazy. Uh, but my point was like, why are the early companies, at some point, you can pay your, you know, founding engineering team at, at market-based salary and, at some point after 50 or after 100, you have to realize, uh, and after going public, uh, that at some point you have to realize that your business model is not as good as Google's uh, or you know we don't have margins. But, but my response to that would be that if you look at a lot of companies that hired that way, that was just the existing philosophy in the Valley and it worked. Like Airbnb, they overpaid. They're fine now. Palantir yeah. didn't overpay. They're still fine now. Um, you see Dropbox overpaid, they're fine now. So it's like you can play, you can see companies that overpaid and they worked out in the end. You can see companies that didn't overpay and they worked out in the end. It's really tough, I think, in retrospect to go back and in hindsight, just say, it's very easy, I I guess I would say, to say, if your business didn't work out, you shouldn't have paid as much. And if your business worked out, great. Good that you paid more. I just think it's a hard decision. So yes, in some sense, 
in any case where the company outcome is not good, you could say it's mismanagement. Um, uh, my only uh, point is that it's not always obvious that that's what you should do. Because in both cases, an outcome can be good. Um, it's not always preemptively obvious that you shouldn't uh, need that many people or, or pay them that much. My contestant, my actual uh, view on this is, I think you should pay more in, in most cases. This is obviously depends business to business, user use case to use space. But the one that I enjoy the most is for highly innovative businesses, pay top of market and hire less. Because yeah. in most of these cases, people uh, underestimate how much overhead it is to get work done as you scale. Like 50 engineers who are excellent can get about as much work done as 100 engineers who are excellent. And then those, those incremental value add when you add a bunch of excellent engineers is much less. The organization falls apart. And you can see examples of this even in Stripe, where Stripe, in the early days, I mean, they still hire very exceptional talent, but as they scaled, the talent's work was not being put to use because it was too much organizational overhead, starting too many product lines. Those product lines aren't going anywhere. No executive is really managing these hundred different product lines. So that's when things start to fall apart. Um, so my, my view is for highly innovative companies, yeah, pay them and hire less and make them actually work and don't do you know your 20 hours a week like some Googlers do. Yeah, um, I guess shifting gears slightly. I mean, you worked yeah. in search uh, at Facebook, uh, I believe, and then you went to Google, and now you're also doing a search company, right? Um, so I guess let's talk about if do these LLMs break search? I, I, I let me let me start with Mashpi. That's a, that's a loaded loaded question. I. It's obviously very hot right now, and this is what everyone is talking about. I think that LLMs, clearly, it's it's abundantly obvious that for a large segment of tail queries, LLMs do way better than search could ever do. I think that is almost undeni undeniable. There's no uh, there's there's no evidence to suggest that, that that's not true. However, there are certain classes of queries that LLMs don't really do a very good job on. Right. So if you look up fresh content, we know LLMs don't do a good job on because it only trains up to a certain date. If you look up, um, uh, what's a good example? Even old content that is uh, not exploratory. So head type queries like, oh, tell me about World War II. LLMs are not going to do a great job of that. The web is way better as a resource to learn about something like that. Uh, so that that's that's the first point. So I I do think that it's not going to completely overhaul all of search. It does actually help uh, a, a large set of very hard queries. It completely overhauls them. But the the concern that I have for LLMs is is much more than than I think the at this point of time I was very amazed by them, and then I sort of got nervous about certain things. And I'll tell you what my fear is: when you have LLMs enter search, um, there's a couple of things that happen. One is, I don't think it's possible to keep your ad revenue up anymore, right? So ad clicks that Google, for example, relies on to generate all of their revenue will go down. Because even though you can say, I'll have citations and links under it, I don't think anyone's going to click that. So your ad revenue is definitely going to take a beating. Your cost structure goes up. So the business as a whole suffers. And that's that's one problem. Uh, the second problem is if you think about the web ecosystem, this was a big discussion within Google, even when something called featured snippets came out, uh, internally called web answers, is when you start pulling content from websites and showing it on search, that has been done for a while, but it's been done carefully and bit by bit. And even that has sort of taken away incentives for publishers to make websites. So the web in general over time has really decayed. Like the web growth that you saw, we saw in the 2010s is not the same as the web growth today. And because there's no real incentive to create a website, like if, if I'm a, uh, a person, I'm way better off creating a TikTok video and getting some revenue off of that than trying to create a website for what? Like I'm, there's no incentive for me. With LLMs, that's even more exacerbated. 
Um, so I, I do fear for what the consequences that is, that has on the actual web ecosystem, because we, the, the research shows, at least today, that the only way, the only bottleneck to scale LLMs to better quality is to have more data. Much, much more data than even the, the, even the web as we know it today. Where is that data going to come from if you know, no one's creating anything? That's, that's point two. Third point is these citations that current LLM in implementations on search do are already based off of a ranking algorithm that has been tuned and, and, and been worked on for a very long time. Now, those ranking algorithms work off many signals, but one of the key signals is how people behave with web results. A lot of those signals are who's clicking where on what, how long are you hovering, how much are you scrolling, how long is the click duration when you click into something, et cetera, et cetera. When you have an answer which just kind of muddles a bunch of results into one, do you get those signals anymore? And if you don't, then how are you expected to improve your ranking algorithms over time? for things you haven't seen before. And what effects can that have? Like in the worst case, that can have effects like a grandfathering effect where nothing ever starts ranking again. Once you're ranked number one to five, you're always ranked number one to five because no other signals come in. So those are massive detrimental possibilities to the entire internet and web ecosystem as we know it today. And that's, I think, a net very bad for humanity because the open web is actually the most beautiful thing about the internet, like no one likes closed silos and Instagram and TikTok. That just moves power from a democratized open internet to these small companies who then control all their data and do their individual stuff. Search doesn't work well. Discovery doesn't work well. That's not a future I that would excite me. So those are that's what my concerns are. But I do think, yeah, it's a very groundbreaking new technology. It has a lot of potential. What do you think about... Um... The fact that, you, you know, like, let's, if you take a, a given topic, right? Like, take any topic, World War II or something, and look at the real estate of entire World Wide Web. And if you train LLMs on everything on the web, and what we're seeing right now in the early demos is that we'll get confident wrong answers, because maybe in some topic, in topics, web is completely wrong. Right. Um, and we've seen, I think, I don't know if you remember, like, for example, when Facebook was, you know, in its most prime viral growth stage, it's almost feels like everyone had a positive story about Facebook, ignoring the fact that, hey, you know, a lie spreads around the world within two hours while the truth takes, you know, 20 days. Right. Uh, and then like all of a sudden in 2016, everyone woke up and said, hey, Facebook is, you know, the most stupidest thing we as humanity adopted. Right. Um, so we went from one side of the pendulum to the other. And I feel like there is uh, there's some questions with LLMs, which is, I mean, if you control and then if you control the data that you are actually training LLMs that, hey, then you're making an editorial choice that, hey, right, this is what I'm going to train on the model or. If what if a, what if the collective intelligence in web on a particular topic is basically, uh, you know, non-true or a conspiracy theory or some kind of nonsense, uh, and we're already seeing answers, you know, that actually point out that if you train on a large enough data, because large doesn't mean it's true or correct, right? Large doesn't mean just means it's replicated enough, right? It's true, like a lot of web right now, you know is pretty boring, bland, and uninteresting because of partly search reasons, right? Because everyone wants to rank first. Everyone is, you know, optimizing for SEO or not really for the topic itself. And then these different mirrored incentives developed, but we are still able to navigate it. It's still thriving, but there are corners of the web where this is ex exasperated than, you know, some other scenarios. And I think with LLMs also, there are these, uh, scenarios that are that we will see more and more like once we will start you know playing around with all these integrations that are happening now we'll see more and more that hey web actually has some nonsensical content and majority nonsensical content so now we have to like completely like block out some of these uh, you know things on our models um, i don't know what do you think about that well i completely agree with large that it doesn't mean true i, I always like to say that if you think a democracy works, 
just because 50% of a class says two plus two is five, it doesn't make two plus two five, you know? Um, so the dem democracy doesn't, isn't always right. It's just what the majority of people think. So that, that's just empirically true. Um, I do, I make a lot of analogies. Obviously, researchers are working on this problem right now. I make a lot of analogies to how search co uh, combated misinformation, Google search combated misinformation back in the day, or how um, Wikipedia is a very interesting example, very hard to reason about. Wikipedia also has the problem of com combating misinformation to make sure the truth is on Wikipedia and not lies. Um, so taking the search example into, into picture, it's the, the difference between Google and Facebook is interesting because there is actually no incentive for a search system to be right. There, you make more money by having more clicks. Yeah. You don't make more money by being right. Um, and, and so you kind of have, you have to just be good and want to do the right thing. And that's the only incentive. Um, very, it, there's sometimes the incentives can match, but in this case, it very rarely does it match. Uh, people like reading conspiracy theories. People like, like knowing f false things. Like you said, false news can spread in three hours and the truth can take 20 days. Um, search did a lot of work just out of the good of its own heart to try to combat this stuff. And I think when it comes to training LLMs, a lot of that same technology is going to be used in how you select training data. So it's almost like moving the information retrieval problem to the training data retrieval problem, which is, okay, how do I now pick high quality training data in order to build a better model? And you already see some examples of this today. And like, if you take image generation, for example, I love this one, DALI, trained off a big fat data set of images and it's pretty good. But then you had mid journey, we just made the choice to say, we're just gonna train our really artsy data. We don't care about the other images. Like images don't make any sense to us, we want art. And just by doing that sampling of the training data, they create a different animal. And it's, into my, in my view, so much cooler, so much more amazing that what it can do when you just select the training data. If LLMs, I imagine they're going to do something similar to this. I don't think it's going to be perfect. There, it's very hard for humans to tell what the truth is sometimes. So I don't know how a computer would ever do it. It can only sort of use um, like algorithms to do it. Like, is this trustworthy? Is it a trustworthy source? Is this the best thing we know at this point? What is the time this was written? Because the truth can also change over time. Uh, as we know with COVID, like things people know, think different things at different times. So what is the truth now versus the truth before? Hard problem. All of these, there are ways that these can be solved, but you're right. Like I don't, my only thought is it's a very tough problem to solve. And uh, it gets even more tough because once an LLM spits out an answer, it you don't know where it's coming from. You don't really have attribution to which part of it is false and why. So that's why, you know, obviously Bing does the search-based LLM summarization thing. And instead of just trying to spit out chat GPT-like content directly, so you can sort of curtail how much misinformation you have that way. That, that also uh, is an interesting, um, the attribution problem is an interesting one here because what LLMs are doing is they're synthesizing, right? They're not just directly pulling, which means you can't really attribute in the most accurate form. Right? You can maybe, you know, attribute to the top three resources or something like that. And uh, I don't know what the latest research on this is, but attribution is actually, because one of the arguments I was listening to a podcast where uh, uh, I think it was Jason Calacanis who was saying, you know, they have all this data from, you know, they're pulling from this website, why can't they attribute? I, I don't think it's that simpler because it's not straight taking the text from a website and putting it out there, right? You're training on it and you're synthesizing it. And the classic example, the counter example for that is if I read, understand something and rewrite it, is it necessarily have to attribute each and everything, you know, to particular source? I think that is an interesting battle that will play out for the next couple of years, um, you know, uh, in the courts uh, to look out for. Uh, and and, and the way these algorithms work today is actually, this is, my, this is, this is, uh, I think how all of the big search engines do, uh, the consumer search engines do the attribution is you don't go to an LLM directly. You get your information retrieval, you make search happen first. 
you get results, you re-rank them, you pick them, whatever, you do whatever you need to do. You find four or five results that you pick, and then you ask your LLM to summarize these results, which may or may not introduce new facts. Some usually doesn't introduce new facts, usually does a reasonable job, I think, of summarizing. And then you go down and do some post-processing to say, okay, you've generated this blob of sentences from these results I gave you just now. How do I go sentence by sentence and figure out, oh, okay, this seems like it came from this one. This seems like it came from this one. Um, that's not real attribution. Um, and it's not really real generation either. You're asking it to summarize something and then you're attributing. So which can have strange effects. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. Like, like it's, it's, uh, that's how it's done today. That part is somewhat attributable. It, it has mistakes. The part where it just generates from scratch yeah, how is that even different from how humans think, right? Um, even when songs are written, they're inspired by other songs and you don't have to attribute everything. So, you know, what, where is the line there? The legal precedent is not there. I mean, every company that does uh, large model training is dealing with it. Your Codex, the Microsoft, uh, the, the OpenAI one for code that trains on all of GitHub, that clearly violates GitHub licenses for certain open source projects. You have LLMs that who has, what does fair use mean? As I've seen the same podcast, what does fair use mean when it comes to documents published on the web? And then you have the image generation case, which is like, okay, this is also clearly not cool because these are images have copyrights and they're owned by the person who created that image, that artist. So each problem has different legal constraint. I'm not a lawyer and I can only imagine that the law is not set up for this kind of use case. So whatever decision it decides they decide to make with the law will probably be like just lawyers being like, I think this is what the law says. There's no precedent for something like this. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how many, I think there are probably 10 lawyers in the world who can understand both LLMs and this and come to, you know, come to a precedent on this. Um, but moving on, like, let's talk about Twitter. Uh, do you think, I mean, you, from what I know, you have a strategy on writing on Twitter uh, you have a method to it. Um, but do you feel like Elon is destroying Twitter and all your effort is going down the sink <laughs> at some point? Well, well, I, I, I will say that even though I have a method for it, there is not a intent for my Twitter. I think that's an important distinction. A lot more people who are active on Twitter have a specific thing that they're interested in and that they post about. I still pretty much post about everything I'm interested in. So I don't have, like, these are just my actual interests. So I don't have like a method to what I want to post about. Although I do ask myself the question, are you adding value here? Or are you just saying something that a hundred other people have said? And if it's something that a hundred other people have said, I just don't post about it. Um, so for example, cricket, I love cricket, but I have no new insight into cricket. So I will never post about that. Uh, so that's one. What do I think about um, and actually the story of why I even started doing anything on Twitter is quite interesting. It's mostly in the last two, three years that I've really started uh, doing anything. But as it comes to what uh, what I think of Elon running Twitter, well, I mean, Twitter for me is really, it doesn't make me any money. It doesn't win me any awards. I, it's not ext extremely valuable resource in my life. That's true. So that's cool, I guess. <laughs> um, so that, so I, I, I like I like using Twitter because I like hearing what people have to say and, and think about both my ideas or things that I've said and as well say that about other ideas. Um, for me, it's like the most genuine social network. I detest Instagram. I don't want to see people's pictures or marriages. I want to to talk about thoughts. That's like what I am as an engineer. So I like talking about opinions and thoughts. And this is where you can do that. What Elon's doing with the company is, um, look, I don't have a strong view on it. Like he's bought the company and he has to make it profitable. It wasn't going to be profitable before. Somebody had to go and make it profitable. And the way he is choosing to do it is by firing engineers and trying to build the product back up uh, in certain ways. And then some things are working and some things are not. I will say that I'm generally very, very uh, accepting of what he's doing because I know from like my time at Facebook that whenever you change a consumer product, everyone hates you no matter what. That's just how consumer products work. Change is bad. Like nobody likes to see change on a consumer product, no matter how good the change is, and then they adapt. 
So that's one. Bugs and all the other stuff that's happening sometimes, it's tolerable. Like you're not going to churn off of Twitter because, you know, you couldn't follow somebody on one day. That was a, a bug that existed. It's fine. You can tweet about it. You can make a huge scene about it. Great. Uh, it's it's not going to change the platform. The ad revenue going down, I think, is concerning. That has to be fixed. A lot of Elon's personal image and people's personal view of him affect their view of the product and the company, which I think is bad. I think the company should exist on its own and you run it however you want to, but don't mix, mix the two necessarily. Um, but that's that's my only thought. I am in very highly in favor of quick experimentation and trying to build a better product. And I think that's what he's doing. And so fundamentally, I don't see a reason to have an issue with that. And there are going to be missteps along the way. But hey, I've seen more innovation from Twitter in the last year than I've seen in the last 10. So I'm okay with that. I thought Twitter was doing nothing in the last 10. They launched a bunch of half-assed features that never worked or never got traction. And so I'm very happy with, with what's happening now. I did think the API, uh, killing the API was a pretty bad move. I'll, I'll say that. So, you know, that's, that's, that's my take on it. Yeah, uh, I mean... Although I, one, I think a lot of people have this notion that Twitter in the last, I mean, after Elon, what they're executing, I think that's a little bit misconstrued because last four years, I think Twitter was executing pretty well. I mean, at least in terms of like launching stuff and shutting it down, even though they were like bad features, but their, like what? their delivery of was increased. They, I think they launched uh, stories pretty fast. I mean, fast in the sense for them, not actually when the industry was on stories. Uh, and then uh, they launched, uh, what is that? Uh, the Clubhouse Spaces. replica pretty fast. Spaces, uh, yeah. Spaces. I mean, it never really, again, the, we can argue with the product design, but the end of like the previous version of Twitter was somehow was faster than the last 10 years. <laughs> um which I want to give, uh, because I was feeling that, okay, Twitter like now introduced spaces as soon as like the clubhouse said, you know, said they're not, uh, they're not ready to get acquired. Um, I mean, imagine clubhouse getting acquired by Twitter. Um, that would have been a crazy bull market uh, exit for the founders. It's worth noting that they had 8x the engineers to do it though. Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, that, 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 that's true. I mean, as we've discussed, right? I mean, the incremental gain that you get after a certain point is, you know, minimal. Um, and you don't get, I think there's also like philosophical, not philosophically, but um, there's an observation that humans, when organized above a certain number, like you can't organize them. The whole dynamics change. I think the number often is claimed at 150. After 150, like everything changes, like the same philosophy of management doesn't work, the same way you're organizing teams doesn't work. So it's almost like even in venture, people see that, okay, once you have crossed 150, you have to introduce all the systems in places and, you know, basically treat your company completely differently than what it is before, uh, like 150. I mean, 150 is like someone came up with it and someone wrote in a bunch of books and everyone thinks that is the number. Um, Dunbar's like, number. Yeah, yeah, Dunbar's number. Um uh, yeah, but uh, so we're almost at the end of the conversation. So I'll ask the final question, which is, you know, what are the favorite resources, you know, YouTubers, podcasts, books? What is that you consume that and probably unique uh, or like niche content? Um, that that That's a good question. So I do like to, I... I'll say that I'm very cognizant. I try to be as cognizant as possible of not watching anything that's recommended to me. I just don't like that. I just feel personally bad. If it's on the home screen on a Netflix, I'm just like, hey, everyone's watching this. I don't want to watch this. Um, yeah, so There's so, a term for that, right? Like naturally contrarian. Perhaps. <laughs> I didn't know that, that that was the term. So that's that's how I find niche content in general because I just assume everything recommended to me is just not good. Um, so, but in terms of specifics, I like to read a lot. I do read a lot of books. I don't think it's really tech books that as much. It's more of fiction reading. Uh, I, I enjoy that a lot. In terms of, I do not use Instagram at all much. I do do Twitter a bunch. And I think on Twitter, you can get really far by going niche. So people with very, like less than 10,000 followers have a lot of content. It's very hard for me to think of names at the top of my head, but you can like go and see like my follow list and you'll see 
the niche people have a better voice because they're not afraid of consequences because they don't have as big an audience, but they will tweet regularly. So there's a nice little gap maxima yeah. of people who will have insightful things to say, but will say it often that I like. Uh, then you come to YouTube, big YouTube user. I love many of the educational channels on, on YouTube that will break down like, I can't, again, I can't think of too many. And there's a friend of mine that I really like, India in Pixels is a, a channel is run by a person called Ashris and he is awesome. Um, they talk about linguistics in India, which I'm like, wow. The fact that anybody would come up with the channel about linguistics blows my mind. It's a very niche topic, but he just loves it. So he does it. And I think it's done phenomenally well in a way that you know normal people can actually go watch. So he'll talk about why different Indian languages evolved in different ways. And so that's one. A lot of niche educational YouTubers. Um, and then I would say uh, when it comes to movies and stuff, I I mean, I do watch some things that most people watch. It's not like I'm contrarian about everything. But documentaries in particular, I really enjoy watching. And then after I watch the documentary, I go and do like research about it and then understand what actually happened because documentaries can tell, they're incentivized to tell the narrative. So that's kind of in terms of content I consume. And then in terms of reading, I would say, most of my read there's a couple of substacks here and there but there's none that i follow regularly mostly generic reading list it's like hacker news tech meme um and i will maybe read like strategy which is ben thompson's strategy blog about tech and podcasts so i listen to a lot of podcasts um and particularly tim ferris and all in are my two top favorites and that's kind of a gamut of everything, right? Yeah.